Well, we continue our Mark series this morning, heading to Mark chapter 11 today. Uh, this will be actually our final look at Mark's gospel this year, because in the next four weeks, we're going to turn our attention to the Advent season. We're going to be looking at John the Baptist. We're going to be looking at Jesus. We're going to be looking at the Nativity story, and we're going to be looking at the Prince of Peace born in this world so that we would have a Savior, that we would be saved from our sins, and we would be rewarded with eternal life through faith in Christ Jesus. So this is the last time we'll look at Mark this year and we'll pick up again in January, hoping to finish what will be by that point, I think about 50, 60 part sermon series in Mark's Gospel, hoping to finish it in May, June next year. But for now, we're going to go to Mark chapter 11, and I believe a passage that many people will be familiar with. It's the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. We're familiar with this passage because it's often preached on Palm Sunday, that weekend before the Easter celebrations and Easter Sunday. However, as we come to today's passage, we have to be really careful that we don't just use a passage exclusively on a particular date. So Mark 11 isn't just for Palm Sunday. The Advent season and the story of Jesus being born in this world isn't just for December. This is God's word. It's for every day and every part of scripture is useful on every day of the year. And so as we head to the passage today, I want us to see two truths that will be evident throughout. Firstly, that Jesus truly is supreme. He knows all things. He has a perfect plan, a perfect timing, and all things are under his authority as creator and sustainer of all things. Secondly, Jesus is going to show us that he is the king of peace. He hasn't come to wage war and he's come instead to bring peace between man and God. This isn't about an earthly peace. This is Yes, we are producing brotherly affection and brotherly peace between one another as a result of Jesus. But his main aim is to bring peace between man and God, that he would be the saviour, that he would save us from our sins, that he would justify us, that he would sanctify us, that we would be in right relationship with God. And so we would be able to honour what we've been created for, to worship and glorify our Heavenly Father. And so those two things are going to be evident throughout the passage, that Jesus is supreme and that he is the King of Peace. And it's our humble submission to his supremacy that produces peace in our lives. And so without further ado, let's jump into our passage, looking at Mark chapter 11 and from verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. Now, since the beginning of chapter 10, Jesus has been on a journey heading for Jerusalem. Luke 9, 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus was focused. He knew the task before him and he knew that now was the time to set in motion what would come to pass. And as he journeyed to Jerusalem, he would have journeyed with his disciples. However, likely there would have been a small crowd following Jesus. Jesus is well known by this point and people wanted healing, people wanted to hear his teaching and people wanted to follow this Jesus. Now not only were people following Jesus but they were also journeying to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now some estimates suggest that there was probably two million people in Jerusalem and heading for Jerusalem for the Passover and many of whom will have traveled long distances. And so the crowd is following Jesus, 
but also people are coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now it's on Jesus's journey towards Jerusalem, closing in on Jerusalem, that Jesus then takes a short break somewhere between the village of Bethany and the small village of Bethphage. And you'll see on the map that Bethany on the far right and Bethphage situated on the Mount of Olives, about a mile outside of the city of Jerusalem. It was between these two villages that Jesus took a break. And during this break, he selects two of his disciples to go on what I would define as a faith mission. And Jesus expected obedience. You see, Jesus wasn't necessarily going to uh, describe to them exactly how it was going to happen, but he was going to describe what they needed to do. It was faith in Jesus and what he was sending them to do, and he expected them to obey. And Jesus didn't necessarily need to have this break. It wasn't that Jesus in this moment suddenly was exhausted and needed to stop, but rather Jesus in this moment was helping to guide and steer and implement that perfect plan of God of him journeying to Jerusalem so that he would sacrifice himself for the sake of mankind. Now, we're not told which two disciples were picked, but what we are told is two were picked. And we see this quite often in Jesus and his disciples, that he sends them out in fellowship. Yes, yes, in times he does it kind of two by two, other times he does it as a whole group. But it's a strong reminder that a solitary Christian is never a biblical ideal. And we must beware of the pitfalls that come from being a lone ranger in the Christian faith. We're to come together as the church, as the body of Christ. Now, this isn't always possible. Certainly on the mission field, it is quite difficult at times uh, to be uh, more than that lone ranger at times. However, we are to do all we can to be in the body of fellowship, that body of Christ, being a church together, the people of God, because the biblical ideal is to come together in brotherly affection. So what of these two disciples? What was their task? What were they being sent to do? We'll head to verse two. Go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Say the Lord has need of it and will send it back immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. Now, as we see in verse 2, Jesus takes this break before Bethphage and then sends the two disciples ahead into the village. And at this moment, we recognise something unique to Jesus. He knows all things. He has a supernatural knowledge Sure, potentially Jesus could have seen at a distance, but the detail that is described here shows that Jesus knows what is about to happen. And you can just imagine the shock of the disciples when they arrive in this village and witness exactly what Jesus said would happen. And this is the mark of the supremacy of Jesus. Nothing catches him out. All things are within his will and the purpose of God. Colossians 1.17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The cult was there because Jesus wanted it there. Everything was according to his plan because he is supreme over all things. And this is the wonderful nature and character of God, that nothing catches him by surprise. And it's not just the knowledge of Jesus that's significant here, but the cult itself. 
You see, the moment has been prophesied long before in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The prophet writes of Zion, referring to those prominent hills in Jerusalem, that highest and most prominent hill in Jerusalem. Zechariah was addressing the city of Jerusalem. He was addressing the king, the Messiah, is going to come on a donkey, specifically on a colt. And this colt was awaiting the disciples in Bethphage and clearly is not only showing the supremacy of Jesus and his knowledge, but the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Can you actually see that? That hundreds of years before, God set a plan in motion telling the people of Israel that this is what's going to happen. And right now in Mark 11, we're getting to see it come to fruition and the disciples are seeing it right before their eyes. And Jesus points out that this cult will never have been ridden, which is fitting because if something is to be used for a sacred purpose, it must never have been used for anything else. You see, this was no ordinary cult. This cult was reserved for Jesus. It was reserved for the Son of God by the plan of God in the perfect timing of God and for the King, Jesus, who would enter Zion, Jerusalem, for the sake of mankind. Verse 5, and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. Again, as suggested by Jesus, the disciples were stopped and asked what they were doing. And the answer is simple. Jesus needs this colt. And the response is equally simple. They let the disciples have the colt. The connotation here is, The Lord needs something and therefore the Lord gets it. What the Lord commands, the people are to obey. Now, it might be in the case that the owners knew who Jesus was and and knew that he might be asking, or they had heard of Jesus and they somehow wanted to be part of the story. But whatever you believe, what's clear here is this cult was reserved for Jesus And because the Lord had willed it and purposed it for himself, it was therefore given to him. You see, there is no option here for this cult to be refused because that was not in God's planning. God's planning was for this cult at this moment in perfect timing to be for King Jesus. And that's exactly what happens because of the supremacy of Jesus himself. Now, there is a bit of debate over this passage. That that should be mentioned here. In Matthew 21, Jesus refers to a donkey and a colt, likely the donkey being the mother of that colt. But why has Mark left that detail out? Well, we've seen in our journey over the last eight or so months, the Mark often just gets straight to the point. He picks out that most important element and just tells us. He, he drops a lot of details because in Mark 1.1, he's very clear that he wants to tell us about Jesus the Messiah. He's wanting to tell us who he is And therefore, as a short gospel account, it focuses entirely on Jesus. So the mother of the colt, this donkey, isn't as important as the colt. And so Mark doesn't give us the detail. 
But what we could assume here, and it is an assumption, that a colt, a young foal, would be unlikely to leave its mother's sight. Just as a baby would be upset at leaving its mother's sight, so a colt would be upset. And therefore, bringing the donkey and the colt together in Matthew 21 makes sense. Now, we could get hung up on these sort of things, but I think simpler explanations are available. And what is clear here is that Jesus knows what he is doing and the disciples obey his request. This is a command, an obedient response. This is God's will and it's in action because the disciples obey the words of Jesus. Verse 7, And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it and many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches they had cut from the fields. Now, before setting on this final mile to Jerusalem, the disciples spread their cloaks on the colt. And really, there's two things you've got to pick up here. At first, it could be simply courtesy, some form of saddle for Jesus to sit while riding on this colt. Or we can also see it as a sign of respect and a fairly common one for kings and senior rulers. We need to go to 2 Kings 9.13 for this. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is the king. You see, the disciples were placing before Jesus something to sit on as a sign of respect, honouring Jesus as king. They respected the king and they therefore ensured everything was fitting for King Jesus. And this is further backed up when we recognise that when kings go into war, they would often ride a horse, a stallion. But when a king returns in peace or goes into a nation in peace, they would often ride a donkey. And Jesus was showing and being treated as the king of peace here. He's being respected and honoured as King Jesus and he rides on an animal as signifying peace. Remember, Jesus is king of of peace. He is peace entering into Jerusalem. And it seems that this honouring of Jesus had spread from the disciples to the crowd that followed Jesus. Some spread their cloaks, others spread branches cut from the fields. Now there is significance in these branches because we read in John's Gospel's account that they were in fact palm branches. These types of branches were a symbolic picture of salvation. In 1 Kings 6 29 we read, he covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers. He overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. This was the time of Solomon when they were building the house of the Lord and specifically he had carved into the doors the shapes of palm trees. These were in the entrance of the place of blessing, that as they walked into the place of blessing, the blessing of the Lord, they would walk past palm trees and palm branches etched into the doors. But then often we need to consider other passages as well. We've got Revelation 7 and from verse 9. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
these palm branches signified the blessing that comes from Jesus. They testified the worthiness to be the Messiah and to bring hope to the people. This was Jesus, the one who is going to bring salvation, the one whose salvation belongs to. He is the eternal sacrificial lamb of God. And so palm branches are laid before him just as they will be at the end of all times as he ushers in the age of peace. Now, do we think that the crowd knew what they were doing and knew that if they used palm branches, they were signifying the honour of King Jesus? I don't think so. However, remember what we said at the beginning. Jesus is supreme, meaning the palm branches were used because Jesus planned for palm branches to be used. He journeyed by fields that had palm trees. He journeyed into Jerusalem where there was branches that would signify his peace and his honour as the worthy eternal sacrifice because Jesus is supreme. He has authority over all things. He planned this before the world was created and he sees it outside of time and therefore this is King Jesus shown even in the finest details of palm trees. Verse 9, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now Hosanna we know as a word of praise. We sing it as a word of praise. Yet the Hebrew word of Hosanna here means save now. It is a word of triumphant victory. And the people saw Jesus and when they saw him, they thought victory from oppression, from the cruel Roman Empire. Save now, bring victory. Jesus was that anointed one of God who had come to save them, that long awaited for Messiah. And they correctly recognised Jesus the Davidic king who would save them and reign in his new kingdom. Hosanna, save us now. They declared Jesus as the son of David, that title that was belonging to the Messiah. But the people were treating Jesus like the anointed one because they wanted salvation from the Romans, not salvation from their sin. John MacArthur writes, Jesus did not come to conquer Rome, but sin and death. The people had the right belief that Jesus was the Messiah, yet they had the wrong understanding. And we know this fact for a few days later, potentially this same crowd was shouting crucifixion, crucify of Jesus, release Barabbas, crucify Jesus. The people wanted Jesus on their own terms rather than that of God's. Yet Jesus does nothing here to stop their declarations, for he is in fact the Messiah. He is David. He is triumphant and he will save the people. He just won't save them in the way that they think they're going to be saved. Verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything and it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, before we come to this verse, take another glance at this map. Jesus has entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. To do so, he would have to cross the Kidron Valley. And this valley had the Kidron River flowing through it. Now, strangely, the river would not have been clear. Rather, it would have been tinted and dyed red. For the temple would drain out the blood from the offerings into this river. Now, that seems like an unimportant fact. Yet the symbolism of this is profound. 
Jesus would shed his blood, creating an eternal covenant and through faith in him we might find salvation. And as he journeys to that point, as he journeys to the cross, he walks over the blood of the sacrificial system. The symbolism here is that Jesus is placing the sacrifices under his foot, declaring himself as the eternal superior sacrifice. And this moment is monumental, showing that everything's about to change. Everything in just a moment of Jesus, the King, the King of peace, the Supreme King is going to change everything. It is Jesus, not the sacrificial system, that we will find true transformation from. Now, if we go back to verse 11, here's a question for you. How many of you thought that Jesus journeyed into Jerusalem, went straight to the temple, burst out into anger and tossed the tables everywhere? We'll come on to that in January, but how many of you thought he went straight in and boom, there goes his anger and there goes the temp temple's tables? It's certainly what is often taught. Yet here in Mark 11, we read, late in the evening, Jesus went into the temple for a look, a preliminary inspection of his father's house. Then after this inspection, he heads back out towards Bethany where he rests for a while, likely in the house of Mary and Martha. Two things are surprising here. Jesus first inspects before he acts. In the coming verses, and we'll look at them in January, Jesus reacts and we see a whole other side of him. Yet this wasn't rash and it wasn't reacting in the moment. Rather, it was pre-planned after the inspection that he gave in that evening. The second thing that's surprising is this rest in Bethany. Remember, Jesus has set his face on Jerusalem. He knows what he's going to do, but then he turns back for a rest. And when you combine these two elements together, we learn a valuable lesson from Jesus. He rested before he acted. And it's at this point that we stop our Mark series for this year. And we'll pick up again, as I say, in January. However, let's not rush away from the passage. Let's consider what it means for us here and now and how we should apply this passage to our lives. Uh, first and foremost, we find security in Jesus. Security in Jesus. Uh, recently, one of our girls, I won't say who, had a wobbly tooth. It had been wobbling for, I think, at least a couple of weeks. And it got to the point where it was hanging out and hanging by a thread. And it was time for this tooth to come out. Now, we as adults know that a simple tug, the tooth will come out and all will be fine. But for a child, it is a lot scarier because it's unknown, especially if it's one of the first few teeth to come out. It's unknown as to the level of pain and what's going to happen. Well, having spent, I think, a whole evening hearing about the moaning about this tooth hanging out, it was time to give it a tug. So I held my daughter in my arms. I whispered into her ear that everything was going to be fine and that dad was going to resolve it. Trust me. I love you and I don't want you to come to pain. I said, close your eyes. Trust me. We're not going to hurt you. We're going to help you. Well, that would have been a great story if the tug actually was helpful. In fact, it was useless and we had to hand over to Miriam and let mum come to the rescue. And fair enough, the tooth came out. Uh, but certainly from that story, uh, dad's just passed to mum because it's so much easier uh, because 
us dads sometimes just don't have a clue what we're doing. But the moral of the story is that children feel secure with their parents, with the ones that love them. They feel safe. They trust those who love them. So we as children of God find security and peace in Jesus. In our passage today, we are reminded that Jesus knows all things. He's not surprised by anything. He's not caught off guard by anything. We can walk into the complete unknown, the complete dark, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are guided through it. Psalm 147 verse 5, great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Do you see that? That we cannot measure the knowledge and understanding of God. Now, if we apply that to COVID-19 and our newfound knowledge that Lincolnshire will be in the highest tier of lockdown, apply it to how we will cope as families through the Christmas season. Apply it to the feeling of loss and claustrophobia that comes from this COVID time. Jesus is in control. He knows all things. He knows you're struggling. He knows the trials and he knows what's waiting for you. Yet he calls you to trust him to lean on him, to be held by him. The trial's not going to go away, but like a father wrapping his arms around his scared daughter, Jesus will be a mighty fortress around those who place their faith in him. And we get that from one simple story where Jesus knows what lies ahead in a village. He knows what's going to happen in the temple. He knows why he's heading to Jerusalem and therefore he knows what you need lean on him, take your fears to him, take your worries to him and find security in Jesus. That leads us on to our second point and that is peace in the storm, peace in the storm. The character of Jesus in this passage I think is phenomenal. He is calm, collected and at peace. He's able to pause, explain to his disciple what he needs. He's able to calmly walk into the city where he'll soon be sentenced to death. He's able to go back to Bethany for an evening of rest. He is peace in the storm. And I have to be honest and say, I don't think many of us are like this. We are worriers, we're panickers and fixers. We want everything resolved and normality to resume. That's what we're saying, isn't it, in COVID-19 times. When will we get back to normal? When will we have a new normal? Yet for Jesus, he knew things would never be normal again. And in peace, he walks into chaos, into that chaos of crucifixion, knowing he is the peace in the storm. In a song written by Ryan Stevenson called Eye of the Storm, we have the following lyrics. In the eye of the storm, you remain in control. And in the middle of the war, you guard my soul. You alone are the anchor when my sails are torn. Your love surrounds me in the eye of the storm. When all around you is in chaos, when it seems like life is just one big storm, come to Jesus and find peace. Isaiah 32, 17, and the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. The effect of Jesus is peace and that will result in that quiet trust in the Lord. Wait for it forever. 
You're not going to find peace in any other place than Jesus. You won't find it in alcohol. You won't find it on the TV. You won't find it in earthly success. You will only find eternal peace through Jesus. And it will produce a lifelong stillness of your soul. So still that you would be like Jesus walking into Jerusalem, calmly, still, at peace. Because you hold on to the one who is peace in the storm. Thirdly, I would say don't be misguided. Don't be misguided. The crowd shouted, Hosanna, save now. The disciple treated Jesus like a king. The people praised and honoured Jesus. Yet where were they when he was crucified? Where were they when Jesus suffered for them? Where were they when things got tough? And sadly, too many of us want all the good stuff without any of the hard stuff. Now, we absolutely should have joy in Jesus. We absolutely should celebrate our salvation in his name. But we must never forget that we are called, yes, to the joy of Jesus, but we're also called to his suffering and to suffer for him. So we're not to be misguided. New life is found in the death of the old life. New life is found in the sacrifice of Jesus. New life is found when we beat sin into submission and we take hold of the prize set before us. At 1 Peter 2.21 For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might not follow in it, so you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in the return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Do you see that? By his wounds, the tough stuff, the hard stuff, the difficult stuff, by Jesus doing that, we are healed. You have been called to run from sin and run to Jesus. You have been called to righteousness. You have been called to suffer because Christ is our example. So we must prepare for suffering a little, for a while, until that one day where we get to enjoy glory. So here's where the rubber really hits the road, isn't it? You're gonna be called names. You're gonna be ridiculed for your faith. You're gonna be marginalized as a Christian and we are going to go through trials, guaranteed. And we're going to find life on this earth hard. But do you know what? Acts 5.41. They left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to, dis to suffer dishonour for the name. Rejoice for you join Jesus in suffering. Rejoice for Jesus is worth it. Rejoice for it will only last a while, but a moment compared to the everlasting kingdom. And if you're suffering for the sake of Christ Jesus, as he suffered for us, rejoice because you have been counted worthy by King Jesus to live such a life. So don't look upon trial as something that will be hard and difficult. Look upon trial as something that Jesus is taking you through for his glory's sake. Don't be misguided today. Fourth and finally, my point is Jesus. That's it, Jesus. We're heading into a season entirely marked by the birth of Jesus. We've spent nearly a year preaching the first 10 chapters of Mark, which is all about Jesus. And today we see the story is not about a donkey nor the people, but about Jesus. Look at his peace. Look at his supremacy. Look at his willingness to suffer. 
Look at his majestic entry. Look at his knowledge of all things. Look at the beauty that is our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you not captivated by him? Jesus is God. He is eternal. He's all loving, all powerful, completely holy. And don't you just adore him? As we go into the coming season, friends, don't make it about COVID tears. Yes, we honour them, but it's not our focus. Don't be focused on earthly gains and losses. Don't focus on government news reports. Don't get caught up running crazy for work. Instead, be focused on Jesus, captivated by his presence, honoured by his sacrifice, adoring his majesty, convinced in in our salvation found in him. Be in awe of the Father, willingly sending his Son. Be spurred on by the Spirit who will give you power to get through this season. Be the church, be the people of God, be citizens of heaven and be all for Jesus. Because what Mark 11 tells us is nothing else matters because Jesus is supreme and he is king of peace. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for that wonderful, beautiful character of Jesus who brings peace to chaos, who willingly walks into trial for the sake of mankind. We praise you for salvation in his name. We praise you for that wonderful saving grace of Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray he would be our focus as he set his face to Jerusalem. Let our faces be set to King Jesus, the King of all peace. And Father, as we go into this Advent season, we know it's going to be different. We know things are going to feel strange. But Father, for believers in Christ, what a joy it will be to celebrate King Jesus. And so Father, we look forward to every moment we can worship with you, pray to you, learn of you, and share that wonderful gospel message that is King Jesus, born in this world to save mankind. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.